Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast. I'm Teresa, and that's... Angie! Okay, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) That was weird. (laughs) I know, I was just like, that's a longer pause than normal, so I just felt compelled to say that. You know, like that, 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 do the jazz hands. I'm still Angie. Yeah. See my jazz hands? Well, you can see my jazz hands. No one else can see my jazz hands. Do do you have tiny fingers? I do. Me too. I have baby fingers. My I my hands are uh-huh. are a Japanese hey. medium. And so I, are I'm my sorry, feet. did you say a Chinese medium? Japanese. Like so in Japan. Okay, so if I'm I buying gloves. Shop in the I'm kids' in... department. Okay, yeah, so same, same. I'm a yeah. size five in kids. Yeah, kit for hands and feet. I You're can wear a three four? to a, a three to a four, depending on who makes it. Yeah. Dang, dude, my my daughter's like, hey mom. That's very exciting. I'm almost your shoe size. Can <laughs> I wear them heels? That's a weird thing. Your your you, son's she can wear all my heels. Uh, no, Ethan didn't wear my. The, unfortunately, I have no footage of either of them wearing my girl shoes. But I had this pair of like camouflage slips that I absolutely loved. And when Ethan was like eight or nine, he broke his foot, and he wore one of them while his other foot was in the boot um and then i could never wear him after that because his foot shape is so much different than mine <laughs> that when i put it i put that one shoe on i was like this is wrong yeah <laughs> what's wrong with your feet child and he's like i don't know i'm eight like <laughs> right whatever oh, yeah i had one good shoe and one ethan shoe what are you gonna do i love him buy a second pair <laughs> oh my god but I, I could have fight it we together, otherwise I would have. There's that yawn again. Don't look at me, yawn. What what am I supposed to do? Like close the screen? All of a sudden your screen goes I don't, dark. I don't it's know. Like, I'll just look away when I need to yawn. Just hide behind that that curtain. <laughs> it's just it's just my picture. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden you're you're pretending like you're <laughs> hiding in the dorm at during the great eggnog riot. <laughs> I a hundred percent know that I would be the one that like complied with all the rules, but was totally the problem causer. I a hundred percent. I guess I'll go back upstairs now. I a hundred percent know that I would have been the one to take several drinks really early in quick succession and then go to bed, like before <laughs> Jefferson Davis went to bed. I would go on my own volition. Like, you know what? I don't need to be told. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go do this thing. Yeah, I'm going to Irish goodbye after taking shots and, like, making my cameo. And then I'm done. <laughs> and then the next day, I'm going to be like, why are y'all angry? <laughs> like, what happened here? Why is the staircase torn apart? Who bring down the D block? Right. What? Like, why uh, is everything yeah. broken? And why do we all have court martials on our desk? Yeah, Everyone's this is about yelling. the this is about the bribing the sailor thing, isn't it? Look, <laughs> yeah, I had the thirty five cents, but to be fair, he took it. He could have said no. And do you know what he did with it? I saw him at the taco truck later. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Just saying. Yep. 
I don't think that's how it went down. I imagine I imagine that if anybody went to bed early, they probably didn't say a word the next day. <laughs> yeah, they probably just looked around did one of those things and just the went. The eggnog right might be my favorite part of American history. I mean. Yeah. It's just one of those like, wait. <laughs> what? Where? I need you to back it up. Why? Okay, wait, you... You just said Jefferson <laughs> Davis was in the same school as General Robert E. Lee. Hold, hold on. They were students. That... Okay, Jefferson Davis drunk. Okay, I'm with you. I At understand. At the same time? The same time. Oh, and, and Edgar Allan Poe was a freshman. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, wait. So the three of them were in the same mess hall. Like The plot, th- I didn't know that. It was just like, it's not like there was any... That's like the beginning story. of a bad joke. It is, but it's like, I can't quite get there. <laughs> you know? And it's just like, <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I didn't confirm if Poe was at the school during the eggnog riots, but I know that he was at the school during the same time as Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. And it, that wouldn't be too hard to look. It would just be what years did Poe go to the school? Was he during, was he at, west point during 1826 i could google it now but i won't it's funner to just ponder it i think um because the idea that edgar poe went to west point just i don't know why it just doesn't i'm like no he didn't it's, it's almost <laughs> like saying mary shelley went to west point it just doesn't compute it has that yeah it, it has that exact same feeling like are you are you sure because i feel like you just made that up yeah. Mm. This doesn't pass the sniff yeah. test. We're gonna have to Google it, but again, I'm not going to because I like just pretending that it didn't that I know. I know, and I'm doing this thing where I like toss my phone away so that I can't be distracted. <laughs> I like that. I mean, normally I try yeah. to keep it over here. I realized that the microphone was blocking it. I couldn't see it on my desk, so you got to see me throw it. These are things. Well, if it makes you feel any better, all I saw was some really epic shoulder movement. That's so I thought you were like showing a, you know, yeah, you know, like, just a fly or an itch, yeah. bra strap, yeah, or that tag that won't that you really need to cut out. Oh, it's always a tag. Yeah. <laughs> they, and I hate that they say tagless shirt, but then you still find a tag somewhere in the shirt. Oh, the care tag. Like, yeah, please tell they, I'm not the only person that is. A comp- they 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 don't put the one yeah. on the back of the neck, but they put the care tag in there, and it's like, I feel like you could have printed everything in the same spot on the shirt, and we would have been great. Yeah. Yes, you told me it's tagless. Like I have a beef with this. Whatever. There's just lies, you know. Clothing manufacturers are just filled with lies. I think I might be more upset about them than Numa changing the calendar, actually, if I think about it. It's clothing manufacturers that I'm mad at. If you're really mad right at then. clothing manufacturers, <laughs> look up the Triangle Waste Factory. Is that going to make it worse for me? Because my problem just comes that pockets don't come in every female outfit. I mean, this is just, you know, the reason why there's a lot of legislation and like regulation around like factories and safety features and things like that 
Like, you mm-hmm. know how it has, like, you'll get people like, oh, it's just overregulated. There's all of these things and they just get in the way of, you know, the, 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 the man, the guy trying to own a business. And then you read about the triangle shirtwaist factory fire and you're like, oh my gosh, this is why those regulations went into effect because people decided they needed to just chain the safety exits to prevent people from quote stealing. And the only working like way out of the building was an elevator. It's It's a terrible idea. It's bad. It's bad. Yeah. Bad. Agreed. That is, I am now, I'm, yes, I'm madder now. Madder at them than I am at NUMA. All is well. Okay. Yep. There we go. Forgive me, NUMA. So on on that note, do you want (laughs) to tell me your story? Maybe we can shift it. (laughs) Sure. If that, do you want me to go first? I'll go first. Yeah. Um, So before I start, I am going to preface my story with saying that once again, I have chosen some names that I am working so hard to say right. So if I say them wrong, someone please text me, email me, call me, tell me how to say it right so I can correct myself the next time. Mm. (laughs) Pretty solid on most of them, though. Um, I, I know I told you to go, and then I feel like I'm interrupting. Yeah. I'm being that person. Um, I feel like we should no, acknowledge why, why we chose the stories we did and acknowledge the fact that they're going to post halfway through February, and we're kind of like, oh, crap, we didn't realize how time works in a linear chronological fashion. <laughs> you mean the calendar? <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's a very set system, but time time is relative. It's a construct. It's not one that I signed up for. I didn't agree to it. I mean, like, I loosely follow it, but, you know, basically all that to say, Angie and I sat down and went, oh my gosh, it's Black History Month. And then went, you know what we need to do? We need to be smarter about who we are and actually start telling the stories that we think need to be told. And we're not the ones to, to really decide what stories need to be told. But, you know, what are the stories in history where we're like, oh my gosh, and they're black. Like, how cool is that? Yes. I'm here for it. <laughs> um, Are you ready for me to go? Oh, hell yeah. Are you ready for me to tell you about my guy? Okay. So uh, I'm just going to say that in English, this individual's name translates to the Lion Prince. Cool. And I will always choose the Lion Prince. If there is a story that has that name in it, I am, that's my guy. Okay. Here for it. So, before I get directly into his life, I do want to mention that there are some things I learned specifically about Africa, the continent as a whole, that I thought were were so fascinating that they're, they need to be mentioned because for me... In my narrow view of the world, um, I think of like a handful of things when I think of Africa. Firstly, I think of places like Morocco and Egypt, and then grasslands and the Sahara. So it's hard for me to to like like reconcile in my mind that there are also great cities outside of Morocco and Egypt, and like Egypt is as 
was my first great love in history. So in my in my mind, it's like its own universe, and there is no like there's nothing around Egypt, and so, mm. so I sometimes forget that they are like all share the same continent. <laughs> so like their stories are intermixed with so many other people. So that being said, did you know that there are fifty four countries in Africa and two thousand languages? I knew that there were a bunch, and there was. Did you ever see the book of America, the book by The Daily Show and John Stewart? I've seen it. I have not read it. Okay. But it I'm, was incredible. I quoted that book in like nearly every paper in my history classes in college. And they they have like activity books or activity pages at the end where it's like, you know, here's Africa, draw the countries as you see fit as a colonizer, or, you know, identify how um, oppressive the country is by the level of the name, like the Congo, the People's Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's like, the more modifiers you put, the higher the oppression level goes. And it's just like this fun, like fun worksheet where it's clearly designed to be funny. And so it's like, I mean, I knew there were a ton. I could probably name a dozen, which feels really sad, but. Yeah, I, I too, I was like, I'm sorry. Wait, 54? Because again, um, I know Egypt is a country, but it is my whole brain. So it's hard for me to like, okay, yeah, there's more. Like, yeah, that makes sense. But the languages spoken in Africa are over a quarter of the world's languages. And I think that's so interesting. It's all tribal. You got a lot of those tribal languages. Right. And like intermixing. And like um, one of my favorites is like the South African, like the use of like multiple languages to form one language that is not English because English is just like three small kids in a trench coat trying to get into a movie. That's how I feel about the English language. <laughs> You're not wrong. But anyway, <laughs> right? Like, that's totally what I think English is. But, like, the South African languages are so... I'm a little bit more familiar with them, I guess, than than any of the other ones. Which doesn't say a lot, because I'm still not very familiar with them as well. But one of the quotes that I read <clears throat> from one of my sources says... The, the source is called Black History Studies. And the quote says... West Africa, this was this was um, written by an English historian. The West Africa has walled cities and towns in the pre-colonial period. Winwood Reed, an English historian, visited West Africa in the 19th century and had this to say. There are thousands of large walled cities resembling those of Europe in the Middle Ages or of ancient Greece. And that made my brain, like, explode. Mm. because again i think of like grasslands and the sahara right not timbuktu which <laughs> the, the literal that, timbuktu that, that makes sense so when i thought when i read that right like the literal timbuktu when i thought that to me it showed such a great comparison of of the african continent versus the european continent and what stuck with me so i thought that i would Give some context to the era that we're in. My story starts in 1235. Europe was almost done crusading. 
the Spanish Inquisition was still 200 years away. The Vikings took their farewell world tour almost 200 years before. The House of Valois in France had yet to rise to power, and in Asia, the Jin Dynasty had just been conquered by the Mongols. And I absolutely love having some understanding of what the rest of the world is doing when my friend, (laughs) Sandita Kieta, decides to throw a bit of an uprising and become the emperor of the new Malian Empire. (laughs) So he is the son of a noble family. And um, he, let me get to my notes where it specifically talks about him. He was the first ruler of the Mali Empire. It was founded in 1235 after he threw a little bit of a party. We'll call it a revolt, if you will. And um, his empire spanned the years between 1235 and all the way into the early 1600s. It covered an area that stretched from the Atlantic coast to the inner area of the Sahara. At its zenith, it covered over 478,000 square miles. So, like, how much of Africa? Like, (laughs) the west of Africa. It has, um, yeah, modern-day nations of Sengal, southern Uriatina, Mali, um, western Niger, the Gambia, Guinea, Bisu, Guinea, the Ivory Coast, and northern Ghana. All, like... Whoa! A massive empire. And basically, um, what happens is he is born in a, in a noble family. And the um, he's part of the Malenke kingdom. And the Ghana Empire was trying to... Um, what's the word I want to use? Like, create bigger trade tariffs and... Um, Kind of caused a little bit of a problem for the Malenke people. So they kind of offed the rest of his family, but he survived. Sources say that they let him, they allowed him to live because he was either a very sickly child or had some type of physical um, disability Mm. to which the Ghana Empire thought would make him either not a problem or they just value the sanctity of life, (laughs) one of the two. can you value so the sanctity of life after you've killed an entire group? <laughs> I mean, to me, I guess it speaks to that we see somebody that is not capable of fighting for themselves. So we better care for them. Okay. All right. Thanks. Like he's not going to be a problem for us. So that's how I took it when I read his story. Okay. But eventually he um, he becomes a leader in his area. And <laughs> he becomes local leader in Kangabong in the Malenke Kingdom. Around this time, they wanted to impose more restrictions on trade. So he basically unites the bulk of Western Africa to defeat the king of the Ghana. In the Battle of Karina in 1235, he wins. And he begins to send his generals out to conquer the rest of West Africa. And that's what they did. Mm. And to to me, like, the natural resources in Africa are already, like, for us in the modern day, are a big deal, right? Like, I'm not going to get into it, but we've got the diamonds, the gold, copper, all of these things. They were just as, if not more important then in the 1200s, as they are today. 
So he turns his kingdom into the trade hub of the world. They become, um, he, he basically rebuilds a burned down city called Nani near the Sakharini River, and he makes it the capital city and he transforms it into the center of African and Arab trade. Now, his story is mostly an oral story passed down through the generations, which can allow for bigger interpretations and more than, you know, larger than life characters. But to be honest, I think they were just telling it like it is because nowhere in his story does it say like, he fought 10 bears in one. So he's you know, not like, like Liu Bang, where he's the, the son of a dragon. Yeah, like okay. they they basically say like he was a son of a noble family. He was a sickly child. He grows up and does some pretty spectacular things. Um, he takes the cities of Timbuktu and Dijin and he turns them into like trade center hubs, but more importantly than that, educational hubs. Both Timbuktu and Beijing have these incredibly important religious mosques and um, Islamic schools. And so in in this portion of the story, people cannot decide if he converted to, to become a Muslim because he was trading so frequently with them mm. or if he continued on in the religious practices of his forefathers. A lot of people believe he did both. And they think he did both because it allowed him to be an incredibly effective administrator. The Arab nations um, and the the Muslims that he was directly trading with and contacting with honored him for him honoring their God. And his own people honored him for the continuing on the ways of their own religious beliefs and acts and things like that. <clears throat> so... <laughs> He goes down in history as being one of, and this is why I chose him, to being one of the first to create human rights charters in 1200s. He creates something called the Mandan Charter or the Koryukan Foga. And this was not written down. Again, it's an oral tradition that has been passed down through generations. You can read it online. There are several articles that are very interesting. Two of the edicts that I want to point out, which I think were absolute gold. Vanity is a sign of weakness and humility is the sign of a greatness. Another states that if lies have lived for 40 years, just consider them truths. <laughs> so where does that these, come from? Yeah, I made the same face. <laughs> I want to know the backstory so bad. But there isn't one, at least that I've been able to find so far. I mean, um, that would make sense if you would when said, your wife or child, my dad was a dragon. If a lives, if a lie has lived for forty years, it's the truth. <laughs> Just run with it, right? But nowhere does it say that. The most, excuse me, the most like offhand thing that it said in all of the write up about him was that the Lion Prince was a magical practitioner which I take to be more along the lines of what we understand today as like voodoo or hoodoo mm. in their belief in the natural, right? Like the belief in herbal care and um, like, like roots and like earth based magic, but not like in Harry Potter. Like that's not what I'm taking from it. And that was the most like outlandish thing they had to say. 
but in his human rights um there are rules about education food security peace the sanctity of life and the the abolishment of slavery on this note i'm a little abolished slavery a second article that i read said he abolished it as a form of trade and I tend to think that's a little more accurate because he talks about how well you should treat the people that work for you. And I don't know if it's just poor translation to English to state that they were slaves or just employees. But I thought it was interesting that even in the 13th century, he's looking at his people and he's like, okay, we need to worry about education. We need to worry about food. We need to worry about protecting our people, protecting our women creating schools where you can learn all of the sciences and religion at the same time so in doing all of this and educating his people and being this huge massive trade hub his area of the world becomes one of the wealthiest in the world at its time so so much so that a few generations later i love this but it made me laugh so hard one of his descendants, who we've seen memes about him being like the wealthiest man alive, uh, Manza Musa. Yeah. Goes on a little pilgrimage to Mecca. Yeah. This is his grandfather. So Manza Musa goes on a pilgrimage to Mecca and he pit stops in Egypt. The amount of gold he spent in Egypt destabilized their market for so long. It took over a decade for the value of gold to actually hold a value in Egypt. All because one man, several generations back, decided to turn these cities that were, um, from what I can tell, either ruined or just up and coming in the Ghana Empire into these massive trading hubs and freely working with everybody that he came into contact with. I've never heard of I him. Mean, like, I've heard cool of his too. grandson, but... <laughs> right? The Lion Prince of all the coolest names you can have. And there's no story as to how he got his name. Well, I mean, obviously it was Disney, right? Like. <laughs> I was. Okay, when you say that, I was actually like looking for like the Mufasa correlation or something. Yeah. Nope. There's Just there's none. There. I don't know if perhaps if that's part of where his like larger than life status comes from. But there's no story of him like walking around with pet lions or having um you know fought a lion or anything like that. I think it's just a title of respect. Like the king of the jungle is the lion and you're its prince. Like that's my understanding, and I think that makes him so much more special. What an absolute badass. I know. Education. <laughs> Free school. I'm right. so into this guy. I think it's so cool. In in less than, he died in 12, I think it was 1255. Um, yeah, he died in 1255. So he did all of that. He built these cities up. So he created these trade routes. He opened trade routes into sub-Saharan Africa. Um, he did all of that in less than 20 years. Timbuktu was considered the jewel of Africa. Wow. Yeah. 
that's just nuts. He's my like, friend. yeah, no, he deserves to be. And I mean, what, what an incredible legacy to not only be him, but to have a grandson who continued to do your work and to be the literal richest man on earth, bar none at any point in history. That we know of. Yeah. I, I think it's just, it was such a fun thing for me to learn because when I was contemplating who I wanted to do and like the stories I was looking up, I was coming across so many amazing women. And I was like, oh, this is a great story. Oh, this is a great story. Oh, she's a tigress. I love her. Oh, I'm going to do her. I'm going to do her. And then I thought, wait a minute. For a, as a Westerner, for a culture that doesn't, isn't notoriously known for celebrating their women, if their women's stories are this crazy, like coming from my perspective, like yeah. Western culture doesn't celebrate women, but African culture does. So I wonder what, how they celebrated their men's stories. And I came across him and I was like, wait, so you were a king of peace? <laughs> Excuse me? I get right. your first few years you were like warring and stuff and you expanded your empire through war. But like what you did with your empire after that speaks so much to, I guess, the stories we don't hear. And I think they need to be told. Totally. I'm I am going to need to like get a several books, <laughs> start trying to find podcasts and just really dive in because that that just really whetted the appetite. Uh, yeah, and I mean there's several articles about them. Like the my main source was a National Geographic article. Um but every article I read, excuse me, I needed to go and like learn more. Right. And I love that like I could have gone on for hours about his human rights charter and the cities he built and the things he were was involved in but it was like okay I need to like pick your topic <laughs> and run with it but I have 27 tabs open because mm -hmm. all the articles are interesting yeah so that's my guy he's my hero all right the good, Lion Prince. good pick Sunita Kaida thank you now that's my guy. I'm excited given, I want to hear about yours. Given that you've done all this, I'm you probably <laughs> saw information about who I'm going to talk about. Before I really get started, I'm going to say that my sources are um a couple articles, a couple podcasts, the podcast Who What Went or Who When Wow. Uh they did one, and I'm just gonna say the name of the title because that's gonna give it away. Bessie Coleman, pilot. Uh, she was also covered by My Favorite Murder. Womenshistory.org has an article about her. I also decided to go deeper on several of the surrounding topics. And so I was researching stuff from the New Jersey State Library. And then I've got a couple articles on PBS. One on, um, it's called Sharecropping Slavery by Another Name. And then another one called Bessie Coleman. Have you ever heard of Bessie Coleman? Um. Is she the, is she a pilot? I mean, it, it did say, you know, the first word, Bessie Coleman pilot. No, I, no mean, I mean, okay, yeah, that's not what I mean to say. Um, was she, did she go to France to become a pilot? She did. Okay, that is literally all I know. Oh, okay, okay. I was just <laughs> so, like, all right, well, I'm gonna need to leave because this podcast <laughs> is over. No, no, no. So when I told Ian, I was like, hey, this is 
that's what our topic is going to be this week. And I want to find somebody like super cool. Mm. Um, fun fact about Angie. I wanted to be a fighter pilot growing up for most of really my life. Yeah. So when he started looking for like topics, he was like, oh, what about her? She was a pilot. And I read like the sentence that said, and so she went to France. And I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to that. I'm not going to read that article because I need to ask this question. Should I pick someone from a different country? Mm. <laughs> and if not, but then mind you, my husband is waiting on pins and needles for the day we take the same person. Yeah. I mean, me too. <laughs> so- Truly. <laughs> It was like, please, just please, just pick one. <laughs> <laughs> so hit me with it, because I know nothing other than she went to France. Okay, so we're we're going back to January 26, 1892. Uh, Bessie Coleman is born in Atlanta, Texas. Apparently, there's an Atlanta in Texas. Um, and to give you some I was context, just that. I know. I mean, like I was like Georgia. No, it was Texas. I double checked. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that becomes really prevalent throughout Bessie's entire life is the racial tension. When you think about the year she was born, or sorry, not the year she was born, okay, but one county over in Paris, Texas, between the years of 1890 and 1920, at least nine black men were lynched. So that is super close to her, right? And it's in this area that uh, blacks were barred from voting and they, they used different means to prevent them from voting, like literacy tests, poll taxes, and even terrorism. So this was, this was pretty bad. And you, when when I read the article, I was like, well, of course they couldn't wait. They couldn't like, it's like, I had to like remind myself of when the civil rights movement happened and where we were in history. So this is before Rosa Parks, right? We were in 1892. So they couldn't ride in the same railway cars as white people nor could they use the same, like any public facilities. And this struck me because I tend to think of segregation as something in the deep South. I, I, and I, I tend to think of Texas as the Southwest. And I think that there's a huge difference. So this was interesting. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I'm just like, wait, that's a very different, you can't say, you know, like it just, it's not there, but it's like, no, it really was there. And this is something that was very huge and a a very huge barrier for her uh she has or had 12 12 brothers and sisters right so big family mom susan is black and dad george is both black and cherokee okay now sorry did you say cherokee yes okay that becomes important later and it said that i was making sure i heard you right yeah um (laughs) And both of them were sharecroppers. So I also want to back up a moment. Um, okay. Because I, after the Civil War, you know, Black people, they really encountered a bunch of things. Like, you know, we have the rise of the Jim Crow laws. We've got a bunch of things because the Civil War happened. And then afterwards, we had the, the restoration where we tried to elevate Black people and give them opportunity to succeed since they didn't have generational wealth. They had nothing when they left. And then we had this huge swish that happened back. Um, And one of those things was practices like sharecropping. I just wanted to confirm that I know what sharecropping is um, because it's been a while since I've I've read about this or talked about this with anyone. Sharecropping is um, not necessarily sharing your farm, but like you don't own anything on your property, right? Yep. Okay. Okay. 
it's it's a system where the landlord owns the land and they allow you to use it in exchange for a share of the crop. This encouraged it's tenants. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds pretty self-explanatory, but it becomes very exploitive when you think of that they this encouraged tenants to work to produce the biggest yield that they could and ensures that they're going to remain tied to the land so they can't leave for other opportunities because they've got to be pot committed. And then in the South, after the Civil War, many of these families rented from white owners and raised cash crops like cotton, tobacco, rice. In many cases, the landlords or nearby merchants would also lease equipment to the renters. They would offer seed, fertilizer, or other items on credit until after the harvest season, at which point they'd, they'd all settle up and see how much they owed. But there's predatory interest rates, unpredictable harvests, and unscrupulous landlords. And merchants often kept tenant family farmers severely indebted and requiring that debt to carry over to the next year and the next year and the next year. And there's actually laws favoring landowners that made it difficult or even illegal for sharecroppers to sell their crops to anyone other than their landlord. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And then there are all the other laws that prevented sharecroppers from moving if they were in debt. That checks. It, it is slavery. And one of the things, like when we think about this, it's important to think about the systemic issues that that hit, because while this this is really slavery, you think of it as like, one thing I learned is that two thirds of the sharecroppers were white and a third were black. And it's like, when we when we think about that, it's like, it's important to acknowledge that this happened. And when there's systemic practices in place, it affects everyone, everyone. And if we're able to really dismantle those systems that are locking people into poverty, everyone benefits, society benefits. Mm -hmm. And that was something I was just like, gosh, darn it. Like it just, it just really pissed me off. Agreed. Yeah. All right. We could do so much better even today. We could do so much better. Yeah. Like there's so many things. And instead of just getting bogged down with, well, I had to go through with it too. It's like, but maybe you shouldn't have had to. Then it's like, let's make it better for our kids or for the people who are going through it now. Like let's, let's make life better. But okay. Back to Bessie. So I'm going to call her Coleman from here on out because typically in articles, girls get called by their first or women get called by their first names men are called by their last name. So I'm going to try to be very intentional about this, even though I just messed up. Okay. So when Coleman was six years old, she started to go to school. It was a four mile walk one way. And she went to a one room shack. And when she got there, there was often no paper or pencils to write with. So that is, that is the level that she's up against. And then when she's about nine in 1901, her dad, should have done the math, but okay. Like in my brain, I was like, she's, you know, a little bit younger than my kid. Her dad decides to move back to what was then the Indian territory, which is now Oklahoma to, you know, try to escape the discrimination that he's facing. Mom and the siblings all decide to stay in Wachahatchee, Texas. And Coleman helped grew up helping her mother pick cotton, wash laundry to earn extra money. And that just like, it broke my heart to know that like, it was so bad that dad left. And she just stuck it out with, you know, mom and all of her sibs. So by the time she's 18, she saved up enough money to go to the Colored Agricultural and Normal University, which is now Langston University. So it's still a thing. 
And then after about a semester, she dropped out. I like its name much better now. It's it's it flows easier, right? It's not so heavy on the time. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, after a semester, she couldn't afford it. And so she had to drop out. So at 23, she moves in with her brothers in Chicago and she starts going to a beauty school and she becomes a manicurist at a local shop. She's also deemed like the fastest manicurist, which I didn't know as a title. <laughs> It is now. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be known for anything. It's so it's about this time that World War One breaks out and her brothers, they both go to serve. Her brother, John, goes to France. And when he comes back, he teases her about how French women were allowed to fly planes. So like any sibling really teasing <laughs> the other, this really pushed her to really want to learn how to fly. But you got to also zoom out and think like when you look at america there were very few american women who of any race who were pilots in 1918 let alone women of color right and but it's also like world war one everybody like once it ends like all of these pilots they come home and they a good chunk open up flight schools and they start teaching flight so she's thinking i'm gonna start signing up for these i'm gonna get i'm gonna get brought on and learn how to fly Nobody will take her because she's a black woman. That's Which so frustrating. I'm, it is. Thanks. And so she's complaining to her friend about how women in France can do everything. John tells me. And her friend, Robert Abbott. Vive la France. Right. Like her friend, Robert Abbott, is this is this guy who owns the Chicago Defender, which is this huge black newspaper. Uh, he ends up being one of the first African-American millionaires. He like, he's like, why don't you just go to France and learn how to fly? So this boss like starts taking night classes just for a year, just for a year. And then withdraws her savings. She also, so she worked at, as a manicurist and also as um, a manager of a chili parlor. And then Abbott. A a chili parlor? Apparently like you can. I, I didn't think like you'd have a parlor for chili. It sounds too fancy, you know? It does. It does. That's what, I, like, I have questions and I need pictures. Anyway, I don't I'm have to them. look that up. <laughs> I don't have them, but, you know, great idea. <laughs> we just need to open an upscale, refined chili parlor with marble countertops and the like, whole nine. White napkins. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's chilly, that's a terrible We'll have idea. a maitre d'. <laughs> of, oh, of course. We have to. It's a parlor. <laughs> um, so after only a year of studying, like she gets fundage from Abbott, another African-American inter- inter- entrepreneur, and she sets off for Paris at November 20th of 1920. That girl. But I wanted like double back. She had two jobs and went to night school to learn French in a year. Go mama. I don't know when she slept. Uh, um, I like a couple hours. <laughs> yeah. Like I was just like, dang. Okay. So when Coleman gets to, to France, she's the only woman of color in her class, but within seven months, she achieved her goal at the school in a foreign language. That a girl. Yeah. And I you love gotta, her. 
I know like this, she just, it only gets crazier from here on out. She was taught in a 27 foot biplane that was known to fail frequently, sometimes in the air. And it was during her training that she actually witnessed a fellow student die in a crash. Oh, wow. Um, she describes it as a, a terrible shock to the nerves, which makes sense. She has feelings. <laughs> it's um, just a terrible shock. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, but it doesn't stop her because in June, 1921, the Federation Aeronautique Internationale awards her an international pilot's license. First of all, here I am. I'm going to, my next one's going to be on a Frenchman so I can actually pronounce the names. Show off. <laughs> I, it was just a bunch of podcasts and me guessing some poor <laughs> Frenchman is screaming right now. And I'm just oblivious and I'm okay with that because you said it sounded good. It's so good. So good. I had That's... to listen to how to pronounce my guy's name like 15 times. Dude, you should have seen me trying to like learn how to pronounce any of the ones from Liu Bing's, like the <laughs> the founder of the Han Dynasty, because I like practiced and practiced and practiced and then started the podcast and went that might as well not even tried because it's not coming out. That's how I felt saying the names of some of these. Like I had these names. I went to bed saying these names of the countries that the Malian Empire um, held. And I was like, I got Ghana done. <laughs> I know I can say the rest, but when I get to it, I know I'm going to butcher at least six of them. And I am so, so sorry. Well, you know, six years from now, we're still going to butcher them, but we're going to butcher less. <laughs> and hopefully we'll make a friend that speaks all of the languages we butcher so they can help us. And we'll just dub their voices in. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> It'll be Angie and Eric do this podcast <laughs> if your name is eric and you know all of these languages please hit us up because boy we're gonna need you um, or any of these languages maybe not all oh of them but could you just help us with one that'd be great <laughs> so zooming back to bessie because absolute badass she is the first african-american woman well african-american woman i should say that and the first woman of native american descent to hold a pilot's license period that girl and then i'm gonna show with the best nails ever oh you don't even know like you need to see it's a small photo so my apologies there but do you see my screen do you see oh my god absolute baller she is pilot photo yeah okay so imagine oh my word okay yeah uh definite fangirl okay so Coleman returns to the U.S. after she graduates. So September 1921, scores of reporters are thrilled. They turn out to meet her. The Air News Service notes that Coleman had become a full-fledged, best word ever, aviatrix. The first <laughs> of her race, like aviatrix. That is just like, ooh. Um, she is invited to be a guest of honor to attend an all-Black music shuffle along, which I didn't know was a thing. Um, the entire audience, which included several hundred whites in the orchestra seats, rose to give the first African-American female pilot a standing ovation. Which Ooh, that gave me chills. I know. Um, Coleman's ultimate dream. She deserves every bit of it. Oh, my gosh. And more. Just wait. The, the story keeps getting crazy. Um, her, her main dream, she wants to open a flight school. 
she gives speeches, she shows films, she uh, like films of her air tricks at churches, theaters, schools, and she's doing this to earn money. She refuses to speak anywhere that's segregated or discriminates against Black people. And Good for her. I know, like she really uses her platform. Over the next five years, she performs countless air shows. And on the, the first one takes place September 3rd, 1922 in Garden City on Long Island. The Chicago Defender, the one owned by her friend, publicized Abbott, the right? Yeah, Abbott. Okay. Um, saying that wonderful little woman, Bessie Coleman, would do heart-thrilling stunts. And I mean, we're talking <laughs> like wing walking. Like you fly a plane. I was going to say. Yeah, like crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Okay. So people are fascinated yeah, by her. No, I know. Yeah, everything about like I don't like the slightest bit of turbulence, and I am grabbing at that seatbelt in my lap, and I'm hunkering down and I'm clicking my heels and I'm saying there's no place like home. Like I am not about it. And she's like out walking on the wing. Yeah. Thanks. Like eating a sandwich while right. She like pinkies up in the air. Yeah. And so People are fascinated by her and she's becoming more and more popular both in the United States and in Europe, which is amazing. She tours the country, she's giving flight lessons and she's performing in flight shows and she's encouraging black people and women to to fly. That a girl. Like imagine being another black girl, a little black girl in an audience and seeing somebody doing these things. Yeah. I'm just thinking, yeah. Like, because I look at him like as a woman, that's incredible. But I, I have the benefit of not having that additional limit. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, and so to hear, to see that, I'm like, wow, that is awesome. She's earned it. I mean, she's earned every bit of it. Well, just, and how resilient she is, right? Like, I think about that a lot. I don't think just whatever, being a woman is a whole different ballgame, but at least, for me, I've had the benefit of being a white woman in a society where I have never been treated less than by the men around me. Yeah. And so I often think of like the amount of things that other women and women of color have had to endure to have something even similar to to what I have. And I think like, I don't deserve to get to be in the same room with some of these women. Like I just woke up this way. I didn't right. have to... I didn't have to try. I didn't have to put up with anything. And yeah, I'm I'm over here fangirling this woman like you would not believe. I want well, to shake her hand and high and five her. You bring up a good point because like when when we when we agreed to talk about these stories, I didn't feel worthy to say it. But at the same point, it's like if not me, then who? And there's many yeah that was exactly black women yeah. and black producers that can and do do this, but. You know, like I need to tell this story because my daughter will hear me and my daughter yes. needs to, like, like when my daughter learned about Wilma Rudolph, like she absolutely, like she will info dump on you about Wilma Rudolph <laughs> right now. Like if I brought her in, she'd be like, okay, let me tell you about this. Like this woman, like you don't even know. And so it's like, I need to make sure that yes. these stories are told for the ones in my circle. And that's the only thing I've got going for me. Cause beyond that, I'm like, there's so much nuance that I don't get and it makes me yes, feel unworthy. I, I agree with all of that. And I also think that it, we, 
okay, because I don't have, I don't obviously don't have daughters and I, I have sons, but my job is to make sure that I raise my sons to respect women and their stories. And it is my job to share their stories. And mm-hmm. so I have been continually blessed with a husband that's like, yeah, your mom knows this. Your mom is so cool. You should hear this story about this, this woman that she knows about. Like, listen, listen to this story. And my sons have no inkling of like, oh yeah, women are less than, or a person of color is less than. They're like, yeah, it's badass. Mm. I want to be just like that, which is not to say I do anything right, but to say like they are doing it right because they see cool regardless. Right. They see someone worthy of respect regardless. Like we have to be intentional. And I think that's so it. special for them. Yes. Which is a hundred percent why I was like, yes, let's do this. Because while I don't feel worthy, stories need to be shared. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So seven dollar better. 1723, she buys her first plane for military surplus and she books an air show the exact <laughs> same month so that when she, she goes walking in with like a checkbook, I know <laughs> I got this right. So she goes to pick it up and she has like, she books the, the air show the same month and she's so thrilled. Her first flight in the airplane, the engine suddenly stops mid flight and she crashes She's badly hurt in the accident. She suffers a broken leg, some cracked ribs. She's got cuts on her face. Mm. And she tries to convince the first responders, first responders that she's okay. Just patch her up so she can go to the air show. But they take her to the like, hospital. I got things instead. to do. <laughs> yeah. Um they take her, they take her to the hospital instead. But thankfully, she heals fully from her injuries and it doesn't stop her. She keeps flying. She keeps performing dangerous air show or dangerous air tricks in 1925. And her hard work helps her save up enough money to purchase another plane. A, it's called a Jenny, which is a JN4 with a OX-5 engine. You can tell I just read that as opposed to like know what it is. Um, <laughs> she returns to her hometown in Texas to perform for a large crowd, which is segregated. And the managers plan to create two separate entrances for one for blacks, one for whites to get into the stadium. Coleman refuses to perform unless there's one gate for everyone. Good. Good. And after many meetings, the managers agree they're only going to have one gate and the people are going to still sit segregated in the sections in the stadium. And she agrees to perform and became famous for publicly standing up for her beliefs. Good. So I wonder if she ever met Rosa. I don't think so. I don't I'm trying think to so. think of like other contemporaries that would have been like, yeah, honey, go. <laughs> well, she doesn't because of this. April 30th, 1926, Bessie Coleman took a test flight on her new plane with the mechanic named William Wills. And Wills piloted the plane while Coleman sat in the passenger seat. And at about 3,000 feet in the air, a loose wrench gets stuck in the engine of the aircraft. William Willis could no longer control the steering wheel and the plane flips over. Coleman wasn't wearing her seatbelt. At the time, airplanes didn't have a roof and due to her unfastened seatbelt when the plane flipped over, Coleman fell out of the open plane. Wills crashed the aircraft a few feet away and also died in the accident. Wow. Don't worry. It it gets, it's going to go down again and it's going to come back up. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to cry, but it's going to be okay. 
Uh, about 10,000 mourners paid their last respects to the first Black woman aviator filing past her coffin in Chicago's South Side. Her funeral was attended by several prominent African-Americans, including Ida B. Wells, who delivered her eulogy. In an editorial in the Dallas Express, the South's oldest and by the time most widely distributed Black newspaper, they remarked the reason to believe that the general public did not completely sense the size of her contribution to the achievements of the race as such. She died at the age 34, and her legacy continues to inspire communities all over the country. And in 1931, the Challengers Pilots Association of Chicago started a tradition of flying over Coleman's grave every year. Many aviation clubs were also named after her in her honor, including the Bessie Coleman Aero Club, organized by William Powell in 1930s, and William Col- or Bessie Coleman Aviators, which formed in Chicago in 1977. In 95, the Bessie Coleman stamp was made to commemorate all of her accomplishments. In 2023, <laughs> the U.S. Mint released a special quarter featuring Bessie Coleman as part of the American Women's Quarter Program. And when I read this last bit, or heard it on the podcast, I broke. I'm going to quote the Who Win Wow podcast on, on to just because they, they said it best. When Mae Jemison took a black and white photo of Bessie with her into space on the Endeavor space shuttle mission to pay tribute to her hero and to give her back to her hero and take her to greater heights than she ever imagined. Without Bessie, she never would have become an astronaut. Excuse me. Yep. <laughs> I didn't pack a tissue. Nope. I I kept the hanky right on the table because I knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it. Could you imagine? Like, we do not stand on our own. Yeah. That's it right there. <laughs> yeah. No, you're you're dead right. And it's these stories wow. that propel us because somebody told Mae Jameson Bessie Coleman's story. Yeah. Oh. All at the prodding of her brother that said, well, in France, women can. All da, of these da, French da. women. Like, <laughs> oh, brothers, am I right? Oh, my goodness. I know. That is well, so cool. What a life. And I mean, she was young. She was 34. And she did so much. She just jam-packed. Because really, like you think about it, it wasn't until, what, she was 23 that she even like dealt with any any of, like not, she, before she, like... At 23, she was still in Chicago, right? Like living with her brother. That's that's really where the story technically starts. Yeah. So that's less than a yet 11 years of flying. Good Lord. Could she drive a car? <laughs> I know that's such a stupid question to ask, but I'm over here thinking of like my accomplishments by 34 and flying an airplane was not one of them. <laughs> right. I mean... You know, honestly, wow. I don't know how prevalent cars were. I mean, in Chicago, probably not something you think to need. I you know. I mean, I'm, I'm just speaking from my understanding of how inner cities are laid out, how cities work. But, but that said, she wow. also did a lot of like touring. 
I mean, I'm assuming she had a vehicle or at least a group of people that she traveled with because, you know, she was doing air shows throughout the country and right, right, right. there's not good public transit throughout the, the whole of the nation. So I would assume that there were vehicles involved and I would assume that she knew how to drive. I mean, good grief. Like the planes were nothing but matchsticks and like tissue paper. <laughs> yeah, they weren't, uh, um, they were not the liners we see today. That's for sure. No. So like for and, her- and, and she left everything she knew. Like I, oh. I took a year of night classes to speak French so I could go to flight school in France. And, um, I had to, I had to get here. Like I traveled by myself to get to France and I know nothing. I know no one. Oh and my She gosh. was the only in that classroom. She was the only woman of color. Despite being Good like on her, the only woman who was taking it in a foreign language, like, like you think about all of those struggles and all of those barriers and she just, she just triumphed. Every single one of them. I bet you she had such a great personality. Oh, she had to. Have. Ugh, I am in love. So I think this yeah, was a good I, I can... <laughs> Like we had the yeah. lion prince and her like. Yo, yeah. Yeah, the tigress of the air. Oh, oh my goodness. I mean, well done with, you know, coming up with the tigress of the air. I will not be walking on any wings. No, hell no. Like, I just. Yeah, I mean. I can't even imagine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I I panic when I have to take a, like, a sharp curve in my car and I know it's safe. (laughs) I don't panic. But my child reports my activities to my husband when I do that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'm I'm just going to say this really quick. One time I hit black ice and I parallel parked my car up against the concrete block um like 70 feet from where I hit the black ice. And when I say parallel park, I mean my car spun. Oof. And just parked itself up against that yeah. And Ethan was like, "Great job parallel parking, mom." <laughs> That's how he told me and I wrecked the car. <laughs> That's well done because, which is why I don't like sharp curves. So here we are. <laughs> I had to teach my daughter not to tell hubs that I bump the curb. So these are things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, um, I'm going to go ahead and call it. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up and I'm going to tell people where they can yeah. find us and how to get a hold of us. Should we find our dearest friend, Eric, the pronunciator? <laughs> Or Sven. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm down for, yeah. for, for women too. I, I realized both names we picked. I was actually male. just thinking I was going to come up with a really cool woman's name. Pat, both Pat. The, yeah, and the we woman, all know communicators are women. I mean, you know, whatever we got to do. All right. But anyhow. it works. We are... Listen, we actually don't care what your name is. We just need your help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, we're going to rename you anyhow, so it's fine. But you know that because you know that we can't pronounce our way to a paper bag. So here we are. Um, swallow. Swallow. Don't spit it out. Don't spit it out. I'm recording this. I'm recording it. Um, I got it. I got it. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> she took a big sip. I said something funny. And then I got Jerk. to watch her implode. Um, one of these days, I'm going to get our content on... <laughs> Instagram it almost came and out TikTok. My nose. I promise you that I will. And 
those channels are unhinged.history. And if you want to apply to our pronunciator role, regardless of your name, we're going to call you Brenda or Brian <laughs> or Bob, regardless of what, how you spell it. Um, you can do so at unhinged.historypod at gmail.com. You've been awesome and we appreciate you. So <laughs> on that note, goodbye. Bye.